0: Welcome to McClatchy's Beyond the Bubble podcast on this late summer morning in Washington, D.C., where, unlike Joe Biden, I'm sad to report that this show won't be traveling to Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, or any other 2020 battleground state this year. I'm Alex Roy, a political correspondent for McClatchy, and today I am thrilled to be joined by Adam Walner, politics editor at McClatchy D.C., who was kind enough to join us before the start of his long Labor Day weekend. Adam, welcome. Alex,
1: thanks for having me back on. Looking forward to, to kicking back hopefully
0: shortly after this, this podcast ends. That sounds pretty good. And I'd love to welcome back to the show, Brian Murph Murphy, our North Carolina correspondent, who I'm delighted to say lost a little bit of money on the Thunder Rockets series last night in the NBA playoffs. Brian, welcome.
2: Thanks for bringing that up. I appreciate it.
0: <laughs> That's the tone we're seeking to strike here. You know, one of brutal honesty, uh, even among friends. Let's leave the, the playoff discussion
1: there for now. We don't, we don't need to go any further with it.
0: <laughs> That's the uh, Milwaukee Bucks fan chiming in. And in fact, we will move on. This is not an NBA basketball podcast. This is a politics podcast. And coming up on today's show, we are going to discuss the state of the post-convention polling in the 2020 presidential race. Have the numbers moved in Trump's favor? Do Democrats have reason for concern? And why is everyone hyperventilating about it on political Twitter? I gotta say, I feel like political Twitter is actually in greater disarray than ever before. And that's really saying something by the standards of political Twitter. But first, this is the first time since the height of the George Floyd protest where the coronavirus pandemic did not feel like the top issue of the 2020 presidential election. That shift was evident Monday when Biden delivered a major address in response to the urban unrest that has gripped some American cities, most recently Kenosha, Wisconsin. Now, Adam, if you can summarize for the listener, you know, this felt like a a major speech for Joe Biden, a major milestone, one that a lot of people in media, including left of center analysts, I would say, were calling on him to make, to unequivocally denounce the violence seen in some cities. And even if he's done it before mm-hmm. to make a major address, it seemed like he satisfied that requirement. If you could summarize the, the speech and how do you think that this issue set, talking about the way Donald Trump would call it, law and order on the campaign trail, how does that change the election? Yeah, I
1: think it is important to, to point out what you kind of alluded to, Alex, is that I mean, really the substance of what Joe Biden said on Monday really wasn't all that new you know, he's been, you know, really hitting a lot of the same notes really, you know, throughout the, all of these protests and civil unrest that we've seen over the course of the past few months where, you know, he's, he's very, you know, sympathetic to, to the protesters. You know, he's criticized the, uh, you know, the police officers who have been involved in these shootings. You know, he's empathizing with, with the case of, you know, the overwhelming majority of peaceful protesters, but, you know, obviously also drawing the line at, you know, the violence and the looting that we've seen in these cities and condemning that. You know, he's done that, you know, kind of more in press releases and some of the limited TV interviews he's done. But what a lot of Democrats really wanted to see, particularly after Law and Order was such a major theme of Republican convention last week, was just to emphasize that more and do it in sort of a bigger... And more pronounced way that more people, more voters would actually see. And that's what you kind of saw with that, that big speech Monday afternoon. He actually traveled to, to Pennsylvania. That was really the, the first major public appearance he's made outside of his home state of Delaware in, in quite some time. And just sort of repeating those, uh, again, th- those points that he's been making that, you know, s- supporting the protesters, the peaceful protesters, that is, criticizing the, the police officers. Who've been involved in the shootings, while also making the point of saying that most cops are good cops, and are you know, I think he actually you know made the line that it's the good cops that want to get rid of these bad cops more than anybody else. So you know, he's being careful not to alienate law enforcement and voters who you know are still you know, supporting police officers throughout this this ordeal, but then also you know very strongly condemning the violence and the looting that we've seen, and and the Biden campaign then quickly turned that into that part of the speech into a minute long TV ad that they're spending loads of money on this week in in key battleground states. So I think he really did satisfy a lot of worried Democrats who, you know, thought he had the right message, but just wasn't getting it out there enough. Because I think as these protests again have sort of entered the the headlines with uh, with the Jacob Blake shooting in Kenosha, there's some fear that among Democrats that Trump could sort of take advantage of this and and that a law and order campaign, you know, could end up working in his favor, bringing over maybe some of those voters who are a little skeptical of him. Back into the fold, but obviously that you know has really not played out so far in some of the polls that we've seen. And I think we'll get into that a little bit later. But really, you know, Joe Biden is really in the mainstream of public opinion on a lot of this, and I think Democrats just wanted him to just get out there and m- make that very pointed. And and uh, I think for for a lot of members of the party, that was that mission was accomplished on, on Monday.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seemed like the Biden campaign was facing something of a strategic dilemma. Right. Because the, the problem, even if you had all of these voices on the left saying that Biden needed to ride out and meet this challenge head on in a speech like the one he delivered Monday, look, the drawback of something like that is that you are acknowledging and in some ways helping shift the issues of what this campaign is about. And clearly, the Biden campaign would like the coronavirus pandemic and Donald Trump's response to it to be front and center. And you, you saw that throughout the convention. You've seen that throughout the advertising of some of their allies on the independent expenditure side. That's where they want the focus to be. But I feel like an acknowledgement Monday that this issue is not just something that exists online. This is creeping up in terms of importance to voters, maybe even to suburban voters, like you hear some political operatives talk about that they see in their focus groups and some of their polling that this is rising as an issue there. And so they they wrote out, you know, in, in a sort of almost quasi-dramatic way, almost like a West Wing way where you give a big speech in response to something. It doesn't always work out that way in actual reality in in politics, and that's not always the wise political move. But I did see the Biden campaign, I thought, tried to do three things. They did try to meet the challenge head on. and And I really think Biden's saying that the people who do engage in looting or any kind of other violence should be prosecuted to the full extent. I felt like he then tried to say that the real... Instigator in this situation was Donald Trump. You know, how possibly can Trump solve this problem when he's already president and you have these kinds of problems? And his rhetoric, in some ways, in Biden's words, foments some of this unrest. And then at the same time, and I thought this was interesting, he tried to broaden the definition of safety and security, right? I mean, Trump wants us to focus on your like physical security of you and your family and your suburban home, more or less. And Biden, I think, broadened the discussion to talk about not just physical. Safety, but financial security, right? And he talked about social security in this speech. That you and I, I think Adam, were g-chatting each other during. Oh, we were we're kind of wondering what's going on here. Why is he talking about social security? Well, this week he just released an ad focused on social security. I think pretty clearly aimed at keeping this the group of seniors who have swung toward him in his camp. So it it felt Adam like it was an effective speech. You know, I guess we we have to wait and see. It was telling to me that they took that speech and put it in the ads, like you mentioned seemingly a good sign that the campaign thought this went well. And to your point, you know, not only did did
1: Joe Biden just simply kind of defend himself from the attacks that Donald Trump and his Republican allies have been targeting him with that, you know, you're not going to be safe in Joe Biden's America. You know, we, we've heard a, a lot of that from the Republicans, but then, you know, really went on, on the offensive and saying, no, we're actually not safe right now under Donald Trump's America. And that's not only with, you know, the civil unrest that we've seen in the cities that, you know, Joe Biden is making the case of the president has, has played a big part in Stoking, but also on all these other issues, the coronavirus pandemic, you know, the economy, social security, all of these things, and just sort of wrapping that up into a cohesive argument that wasn't just defending himself, but also going on the attack against Donald Trump, which, you know, I think that, that makes for for an effective TV ad.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it felt like a big point of what Biden was trying to accomplish was not to seem defensive about this, as mm-hmm. if he was for some reason to blame and to really switch the focus back on the president. You know, Brian, we saw this last week, and we, in fact, had a podcast with our White House correspondents, Michael Wilner and Francesca Chambers, where we talked about it seemed like the most important thing to happen at last week's Republican convention was that the GOP finally settled on an anti-Biden message, and it wasn't going to be talking about how he was senile. It was going to be talking about how in Joe Biden's America, you won't be safe. It feels like, and you have some reporting on this, and it feels like some of this has even happened with Trump and Trump surrogates visiting North Carolina that they have tried to continue this message throughout this week.
2: Yeah. Mike Pence is visiting North Carolina on on Thursday and receiving an endorsement from a law enforcement benevolent association where he's going to deliver speeches, remarks at a Cops for Trump event. Or he's going to talk about law and order. Uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina, there's been protests that have, have created some violence, some, some destruction of property. And so you know, you see it up and down the ballot here in North Carolina from the state Republican Party talking about leftist rioters and the need to elect Republicans to the to the governorship and uh, to the attorney general position. You've seen it from Senator Tom Tillis saying that he will never defund the police. He will always have the back of, of law enforcement officials in a way that his opponent Cal Cunningham and Joe Biden won't. Now you're seeing it from, from the vice president and the president who are, who are making routine stops here in North Carolina. Uh, Donald Trump visited on Wednesday. He announced that he'll be back next Tuesday to North Carolina. It really is a sharpening of the focus on Joe Biden. And I, and I listened to a couple calls this week with the, the campaign, with the Trump campaign, who talked about not only you won't be safe in, in Joe Biden's America, but you won't be safe because. He's being led around by leftist radicals and he he cannot stand up to his own party. And so that seems to be the theme that the Republicans are gonna use against Joe Biden for, for the rest of the way, I would think, is that he won't stand up to to these violent elements of his own party. And so
1: far that that hasn't really stuck, right? I mean, I think you know, they're hoping that now that this is starting to get, get kind of another round of media attention here, these issues, you know, that they can sort of try and paint Joe Biden as this tool of the radical left, uh, and we've talked about this on this podcast before. But you know, for someone who's been in the public eye for so long and is generally seen as you know a more centrist Democrat, sort of seen as this elder statesman, it's just I don't think that argument is really really squaring for for voters right now that that Joe Biden is is someone who is is going to be you know taken over by by you know the Bernie Sanders and, and the AOCs of, of of the party.
2: What I thought was interesting doing some reporting on mm-hmm. on this issue was that you know if you look at polls there was a poll from from yougov that came out that showed that 61% of americans think bringing people together is the right approach to solving solving the issues that are happening with civil unrest whereas 39% believe that a law and order approach would work best. That plays right into to Biden's hands. I mean, what, what he's, his message has been, you know, there, there are bad actors on this side, there are bad actors on that side, let's bring the good actors together and we can, we can solve some of these problems. That's a much different approach than, than obviously Donald Trump's approach. And right now, at least if you believe these polls, More people are in favor of that approach than the law and order approach.
0: It seems like when you, when you pick an issue to use against a presidential candidate like this, I think in most cases, what you want to try to do is separate the candidate from their base, separate their base from the sort of moderate voters that the candidate needs to win. You know, that this is a wedge issue driving the two parts of your opponent's coalition apart. Brian, I mean, you know, on its face, that would make sense. I didn't see, though, any backlash from the left after Joe Biden's speech, right? I, I think there was this expectation from Trump and Trump's campaign that Biden would be hesitant to denounce some of these protests because it would potentially, you know, it would, it would anger some of his most ardent supporters. I didn't see that. I'm not saying that it isn't out there and what we'd have to see over the course of the next few weeks, how it goes, but did you see much
2: evidence of, of that happening? I didn't. I, I didn't. I, I actually talked to some a sheriff that's endorsing Joe Biden from down here in North Carolina, and he, you know, was was perfectly fine with with uh, Biden's approach. What I think is interesting is, you know, the, the talk from the Trump campaign about this radical left, Antifa, and painting them as Biden supporters. I don't think the Biden campaign necessarily thinks of that group as Biden supporters. I, I think what he- I'm not sure Antifa thinks of themselves right, as Biden supporters, right, but right. I
0: digress, yeah.
2: Right, yeah. I don't think the Biden campaign is at all worried about losing supporters that are willing to, to fire bomb buildings or throw Molotov cocktails at, at police officers. I think he's far more worried how it plays in the suburbs with suburban women, with seniors that you mentioned earlier, with people who are much more likely to turn out and vote for him than some of, uh, some of the radicals out there. In my mind, it's an easy victory for Biden to go out and denounce people who are, are doing that kind of harm. Cause I don't think he really thinks of those people as avid voters for him.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a really crucial point. I will say this though for the, the Trump campaign. Look at him. If this election continues to be solely about the coronavirus pandemic, Donald Trump is probably not going to win this race and it, it probably won't even be all that close. They had to try to do something to shift this race onto more favorable terrain and whether or not the train is it gonna be favorable enough for them to stage a comeback? Obviously it remains to be seen. We just raised, I think, some pretty serious doubts about it. But look, two months left in this race. He's down by eight to ten points nationally. You have to at least try something, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you can see why a a sort of law and order themed campaign would appeal to Trump and the Republicans. You know, it's something that he ran on. You know, a version of in 2016, it was a little more focused on immigration and securing the border, and that obviously was was pretty effective for him. And just historically, if you just look at Republicans in past presidential elections, a law and order message has really helped them fortify, you know, suburban areas, for for instance, which is obviously a key. Battleground in 2020, but the demographics of this country have changed a lot in recent elections, particularly in the suburbs. You know, and people are just viewing protests and this civil unrest, you know, a lot differently than they have, you know, in different periods of of the United States. So, you know, if you just look at, at some of the polling that's come out from the conventions, you know, it's just it's not clear that law and order is a winning message for Trump. You know, Joe Biden actually has the advantage on a lot of these issues. And, you know, it gets sort of asked in in a different way in every poll, but, you know, there was a national Quinnipiac poll that came out this week, and it shows, you know, Biden, you know, has a lead on, you know, who can best handle racial inequality, who can just best handle crises in general. And I think, you know, a very... Key question is sometimes you can just boil down these very complicated elections to, to a very simple poll number. You know, right now, 58% of Americans think the country is worse off compared to 2016, while 38% disagree. You know, it, it, sometimes it, it just is that simple. And when you're an incumbent president, that's not the ground you you want to be on. And, you know, and, and one thing that, that, you know, I think is interesting, Alex, and, and you and Dave actually wrote about this a little bit during the convention last week is the strongest issue still for Trump is the economy. And obviously, the economy is not in great shape right now, in large part because of, of, of the pandemic. But but it's not really a case that we're we're hearing much from him, you know. And I would just wonder if that's because it, it is just tough to run on the economy when it when it isn't in good shape, even if voters think that you can better handle it than your opponent. You know, I wonder if if that's maybe something that that we'll hear a little bit more of from the Republicans in the next two months. You know, maybe you know just that the president is the one who who can best sort of lead the economy in, into the, into a recovery. Because right now, coronavirus, these issues of, of law and
2: order just aren't working out for them at the moment. But I wonder, and I looked through a lot of these polls for, for some of my reporting this week, I wonder if the theory is they have to bring Biden's favorables down. Because even people who think that Donald Trump did a good job on the economy aren't necessarily willing to support him. And mm-hmm. so I, I think that can only get you so high at some point. I think the thinking is, and maybe I'm wrong on this, I'm, I'm certainly not being paid to be a political consultant, but that, that they've got to find an issue that will that will drag some voters away from Biden because simply adding to the to the Trump column is a little more difficult. I
0: still think the fundamental key is this issue might look different if Donald Trump was a challenger to Joe Biden, mm-hmm. but Joe Biden were the incumbent president. I just think intrinsically that that is the biggest challenge. Again, I, I don't know that it's a it's a bad idea because you had to find a way to change the subject from coronavirus in some form or fashion. Maybe the terrain isn't favorable here either, but it's more favorable than the pandemic, arguably, anyway. Look, when you're down 10 points nationally, you got to try something, I think, if you're, you're a campaign with two months to go. Speaking, though, that's a good segue, now, being down 10 points nationally, we did have a spate of post-convention polling to really dig into over the last couple of days. Adam, I think the headline here is, after all of that coverage and sound and fury around both conventions is the race in essentially the same place that it was beforehand
1: yeah more or less i think you know if you look at the national polling averages maybe you know trump gained by by a point maybe two but you know it still is kind of in that 7 to to 8 point range where biden is ahead also critically biden's still kind of right at that 50% mark you know we i think the three of us actually talked about this on a podcast Earlier this year, about how that's a huge difference from where the race was in 2016, where even in a lot of the polls where Hillary Clinton was ahead, she was you know maybe in in, in the mid 40s at best because there were a lot of third party candidates who were siphoning off votes and just simply a lot more undecided voters at that point in the race than there are now. So so yeah, clearly I think you know with two months to go, you know you'd rather be Joe Biden than, than Donald Trump. That's not to say that things can't change in the next two months or that, you know, Trump doesn't have an opportunity to, to make up some ground. I think as we discussed, you know, the economy, still sort of an issue that that he is holding, you know, not necessarily an advantage on, but is at least running even with Biden on because Biden is holding an advantage so far in 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 every other major issue. You know, obviously, I think that the trajectory of how Americans view the, the coronavirus pandemic over the next two months is going to, you know, play a big role in this. Obviously, Trump has gotten very negative Mark's you know, ever since this pandemic started, for how he's handled it, but there was in another interesting poll number. In, and yeah, in tweeted yeah, this yesterday. That in, was a in, great. In, it was in, a great in detail a, in a CNN poll, and I'm going to pull it up here so so I don't get it wrong.
0: Adam did actual research. For the show. <laughs> I know. I, <laughs> I wrote down the, like, all these numbers here, Murphy. I would just like 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 you to take note of that.
1: So yeah, so I thought this was interesting. So the most recent CNN poll that was conducted after the, the conventions found that actually a majority of Americans, 51, percent believe that the worst of the pandemic is now behind us. 43% believe the worst is yet to come and that's even a shift from just the past couple of weeks they did a poll in mid august as well only 40% said that the worst was behind us while 55% the, said the worst is yet to come so that, that you know that's a glimmer of hope for trump in the sense of again you know just to reemphasize that his his marks on the pandemic are still very negative among voters his overall job approval is still very negative but if voters do feel that in the next two months that the, that the pandemic and the coronavirus is starting to fade and that things are getting better, that the economy is starting to turn around, you know, people have, have short memories. Maybe they, you know, are willing to overlook the way Trump had handled this up until this point. And if by November they feel that things are at least on a positive trajectory, maybe they they think to themselves, you know, let's not not change the driver at this point, especially if you're, you know, one of those maybe more center-right voters who just doesn't feel totally comfortable with Joe Biden yet, but but you just don't Feel that Donald Trump is fit to be president in this moment. Maybe you start to see some of those softer, more republican leading Biden supporters start to come home. Again, you know it's it's a very narrow path here, but you know that that is at least potentially one bright spot for for Trump in some of these polls that came out the past few weeks. But but otherwise, you know it doesn't look great. You know there were some Fox News polls that came out yesterday showing Biden up big in Arizona and Wisconsin and a slightly narrow narrower lead in North Carolina. And just to get back to to that issue of of law and order in, in, the, in the Wisconsin poll, Biden actually had a lead of 47 to 42 over Trump on issues of policing and criminal justice. Uh, and this is just in the wake of the conventions and in, in the unrest we've seen in Kenosha. So it's just kind of a, another sign that this law and order campaign that Republicans are hoping to use isn't quite working out as well as they have hoped. Yeah, I
0: thought those trio of Fox News polls and battleground states was maybe the most dispiriting set of surveys the GOP has seen in some time because there was so much optimism, and even when you talk to the Republicans privately, they would say their own polls showed the race tightening. And then there's this sort of fleet of battleground polls that like you mentioned in Arizona, where Biden held close to a double-digit lead in places like Arizona and Wisconsin, has to be dispiriting. Murph, you're obviously the North Carolina expert here. We've seen some polls there as well, and really consistently throughout the summer, it shows Biden with a very small lead or what you know pollsters might say effectively a dead heat in that state it still seems like of all the battleground states the core 6 that is the 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 tightest race
2: yeah another monmouth poll just came out this morning and showed a 2 point lead for biden i think everything is sort of right in that 47 45 48 46 kind of range and north carolina has close elections i mean there's just Uh, that's kind of the way it is. The state is very, very purple, very divided. Uh, The governor won by less than 10,000 votes. Uh, Senator Tillis, six years ago, won by less than 50,000 votes. It is just a a very narrow state and and in some ways a microcosm of the country in which the, the urban areas are getting much bluer, but the rural areas are getting much redder. And that is just a constant tension that I think we're gonna see in North Carolina probably for the next decade before one side maybe breaks through. I was looking at some of the polls uh, again. And one of the things that I found interesting is that unlike maybe four years ago, it said that 96% of each uh, of people who said they're voting for Biden and 96% of people who said they're voting for Trump said they are not going to change their mind or would not change their mind. It doesn't leave a huge playing field for someone looking for votes like the the Trump campaign is at the moment. I I do think, and uh, you know, certainly maybe this is the old sports guy in me, when you talk about getting back to normal... I think the NFL starting, and it will start next week if if everything goes according to plan. Uh, you may have baseball playoffs in October. The world could feel a lot more normal. You saw the president make hmm. a play this week to get Big Ten football back. Uh, that's a big deal in, in Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin and Ohio and Iowa, a lot of the Midwest. I do wonder if there are NFL football games on Thursday night and Sunday and Monday night. And there are baseball playoffs happening, you know, in New York and Texas. And, and you know, I, I just wonder if if the entire country come October is going to feel like, oh, this is this is kind of normal. I'm not in any way downplaying, you know, by, by October, we might be at 200,000 deaths from the coronavirus. But it does seem like schools are starting to reopen and there hasn't been a huge, huge outbreak of cases. You're going to get NFL and Major League Baseball playoffs happening. I just wonder if there will be some sense of normalcy in, in October that may that may play into the president's hands a little bit.
0: I go both ways on that because there will there will be NFL games, but there won't be fans in the stands And in and, and many instances. There will be same thing with the baseball playoffs. Even the NBA playoffs, which we all agree is it's wonderful that it's back, but it is a strange atmosphere to watch. You know, not having the crowd react. Clearly, being held in just the gymnasium, the kind of what you play like knockout with your friends (laughs) growing up. But, Brian, your point, though, is 100% right. You know, if we get to a point where things start to feel normal again, that would seem to to help Donald Trump's cause.
1: Or even normal in a relative sense,
0: right? I think just in a lot of ways, people have
1: just sort of adjusted to living in a pandemic the last six months and have sort of become numb. You know, I think to some of the numbers that we're seeing, you know, 1,000 Americans are still dying a day from this. But you know, when you see kind of you know those headlines over and over again, and, and at least at this point, I think some of those death totals have faded from the headlines a little bit. And it's just you know, I think there is something to be said for people just sort of becoming accustomed to this. You know, even if it's not an ideal situation, you know, it's just sort of human nature in that sense. And and again, you know, with voters having short-term memories, and you know, to my point earlier, if they, if they just feel like things are at least getting better or at least have plateaued maybe that can work in Trump's favor. But but again, we're kind of trying to find you know maybe some, some bright spots here if, if you're Trump or the Republicans. The overwhelming number of factors are still pointing in Biden's direction at this point two months out. And as Brian knows well, votes are going to start rolling in here pretty soon. In North Carolina, absentee ballots start going out uh, tomorrow. tomorrow, right?
2: <laughs> yeah. And they are up to over 618,000 people now have requested ballots. That's about 9% of the registered voters in North Carolina. That's a number that we could see climb. I, I think based on projections and the way that the numbers have been going, we're looking at close to 15% of, when it's all said and done, 15% of the population of registered voters in North Carolina may request an absentee ballot. And yesterday, while President Trump was in Wilmington to celebrate the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II, which I think gives you a sense of how important North Carolina is, he could have celebrated the end of World War II in any state in the country, he probably could have gone to any country in the world, chose to go to North Carolina, which has 15 electoral votes and is very, very close, as we just said. While he was in Wilmington, he, he seemed to indicate that he wants people to vote twice in the North Carolina election. We, we've all heard you know President Trump rail against mail-in voting and, and he seemed to indicate, and it's sometimes hard to parse exactly what he meant, but seemed to say that if you've sent in your mail-in ballot and for some reason it hasn't been counted yet, which you can track in North Carolina, if for some reason it hasn't gotten there, you should just go ahead and go to the polls on election day and vote as well. To be 100% clear, that's illegal in North Carolina that is against the law. It's a felony. And North Carolina has worked very hard to say, here's how you can follow your ballot. Once you mail it in, you can track it. You can you can see where it is. You can make sure that it's arrived at your local county election board. And they're also planning to count any ballots that arrive before election day on election day. So they'll be counted as part of the election night results that we get in North Carolina. And in North Carolina, you can cast your ballot as long as it's postmarked by election day. It can arrive up to three days after the election by that Friday and still be counted. But I'm not sure what Trump was getting at there. I'm not sure who who wants to hear that message. How that message helps him in any way? But certainly, of all the things that came out of that speech yesterday in Wilmington, I think the thing that's going to have the longest legs is this this bit about about double voting. Just
1: another example of him stepping on his own message, right? You no, know, you know, you know, we can debate even about the effectiveness of of this law and order message that they've kind of settled on, but. You know, you never know what Trump is going to say, and you know that's what's dominating the, the headlines today more than anything else. He's, you know, he said during his speech yesterday.
2: It's particularly in, in a state just dealt with a voter fraud scandal in in twenty eighteen that led to a new election being called. That led that's to right. the state legislature, both Republicans and Democrats, trying to both tighten up rules and laws against absentee balloting while at the same time giving people more options to vote early, to vote by mail because of the pandemic. So lawmakers on both sides have been working very hard. The Republicans in North Carolina have been working very hard to get people to vote absentee. They are being swamped right now by Democrats who account for over 50% of all these absentee requests, whereas uh, Republicans account for less than 25%. uh, Unaffiliated to make up the rest. So Republicans are working very hard to get their voters out there requesting absentee ballots. The president comes to the state and makes a statement like that 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 sort of confuses the entire issue once again.
0: All right, let's move along to what is my favorite segment every week, where Adam and Brian are going to tell me something fresh, new, or original out of their reporting notebook. Adam, you get to go first.
1: I know we've thrown a lot of poll numbers at, at the listeners today, but but there Throw was another one, one, one. That, that I thought was interesting, and you know there was there's just been so many polls this week that it's easy to lose sight of, of some of the interesting numbers in the crosstabs. But, you know, I think just another example of why the civil unrest we've seen, these protests over police brutality and racial inequality have maybe worked out politically more in Joe Biden's favor than we might expect from this national Quinnipiac poll that we were talking about earlier. 75% of Americans say that, that they see racism as a big problem in America. And that was, you know, an overwhelming number of Democrats a lot of independents and even a decent chunk of Republicans see it as an issue, and I just thought that was striking to hear. You know, the, you know, the tone that we heard from a lot of speakers at the Republican National Convention this week—kind of downplaying that. You know, you know, America. You know, you know, racism. You know, isn't that big of a deal? You know, systematic racism isn't isn't as big of a problem as people make it out to be. But clearly, you know, I think. You know, the events that we've seen over this past summer have really, you know, raised that issue to the forefront of a lot of Americans' minds. So I was just really struck to see that that three-fourths of Americans agreed that, that this is a, a major problem. And, and, you know, they overwhelmingly think that, that Joe Biden is better to,
0: to handle it than, than Donald Trump. Great stuff. Murph, what do you got?
2: I'm going to focus on North Carolina. And, and one of the things that's come out of all of these polls in North Carolina is that the governor, a Democrat, Roy Cooper, holds a commanding lead over his Republican opponent, the, the current lieutenant governor, Dan Forrest. He's up by about 11 points. And North Carolina has been actually kind of slow to reopen. of have taken a very deliberate path to reopening. And I do think it's interesting that that are there going to be people who vote for Trump and then turn around and vote for Roy Cooper? Roy Cooper is outpacing both presidential candidates, both Senate candidates as well. So, who are these voters that are are pulling the the tab for for Roy Cooper, but maybe also voting for Donald Trump, or maybe also voting for Tom Tillis? Clearly, there are some of them out there. And tied into that, both of the the, the largest colleges in North Carolina, UNC Chapel Hill and North Carolina State, both tried to reopen. Both have gone exclusively to online classes after huge outbreaks of the coronavirus on both campuses. Most of the students in public education are, are taking classes virtually. I do think that for as much as we've talked about law and order, the coronavirus is still going to be a major, major issue when it comes to North Carolina and North Carolina voters when they have to decide who to vote for.
0: Absolutely. Mine, I will keep this short. Just, I would just say that you know, in the presidential election, we have naturally focused on the conventions to a great extent. We have focused on the message that both campaigns have tried to push forward. But how much money each campaign spends on TV is still matters a lot. And I think it has been overlooked to some degree just how glaring the discrepancy in spending in battleground states in August was between Joe Biden's campaign and Donald Trump's campaign. Just as a sense, some numbers passed along by a Democrat tracking it. In Pennsylvania and Michigan, we've mentioned the Biden campaign spent millions of dollars, nearly $10 million in each state. The Trump campaign didn't spend anything, but it wasn't just those states. The Trump campaign spent almost four times less in a state like Florida than the Biden campaign. They spent almost three times less in Arizona than the Biden campaign. And I think it's worth asking going forward. Whether or not the the power outage that the Trump campaign had in August is something that's going to linger, you know, if impressions were made that will linger in the minds of swing voters over the course of the next two months. And again, in a lot of these states, the voting is going to happen well before election day. Look, if we're going to talk about all the things that matter in a presidential race, not running the kind of sustained ad campaign in battleground states in August. Is something that I think will matter. And just as a, a point of fact, the Biden campaign released uh, this week that they had raised $365 million in August, which is a, a sum of money that I can barely comprehend. And it really stands to, to reason that the Biden campaign might have a financial advantage going forward in, in this race, and that the power outage you saw from the Trump campaign in August, they might not be able to compensate for that over the next two months. I know it's something that Democrats quietly see as a, as a big advantage in their favor and just something to, to keep thinking about.
2: And I would add before you finish that Trump is not getting the two-hour commercials that he was getting in 2016 when he was holding those giant rallies that all the cable news networks were broadcasting from start to finish.
0: Yep, Murph, great point. Brian, Adam, thank you both so much for coming on the show.
2: Yeah, good chatting with you guys. Thanks for having me.
0: I want to thank our producer, Jeremy Sheeler, and our executive producer, Davin Cobra. And thank you, our listeners. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. Talk to you next week.